Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. The famous Donegal travelling fiddler John Doherty gave one of his most exceptional performances here in Ballyshannon, and he didn't even have a fiddle. It was March 1977. John was in his late 70s and was in the Rock Nursing Home. The home is part of a set of buildings that used to be the Ballyshannon Union Workhouse. Two men arrived to visit John. One was the artist and flute player Eamon O'Doherty, who later created public sculptures like Anna Livia, the floozy in the jacuzzi, and the Tree of Gold, both in Dublin. The other man was from the States, a cultural anthropologist and frailing banjo player called Alan Feldman. At the time, they were working together on a study of fiddling in Donegal and Tyrone, which produced the classic book, The Northern Fiddler. Their information was that John was seriously ill. When they saw the grim, grey walls of the workhouse, they feared the worst. They found John in a large ward. He was sitting beside his bed, working at his pipe. He made them welcome, as if he was inviting them into his own kitchen. They had with them a small bottle of whiskey and a tape of a Highland piper to cheer John up. This set John off on a discussion of piping. Both his father and his grandfather were renowned fiddlers, but they were also pipers. Alan Feldman later recalled, Gradually, as John's amusing talk drew us into a closer circle, the atmosphere of the hospital receded, and he began lilting pipe tunes, reels, strathspeys, and marches, one after another. He injected into his lilting all the ornamentations and nuances of the Highland pipes. We sat mesmerized, knowing full well that we were witnesses to a magnificent performance, possibly the last to be given by this great fiddler. Here in front of us was the emblem of the master musician, a man so impregnated with music that he possessed the capacity to make it with the simplest of instruments in the most adverse of situations. His lilting was so masterful that his voice became the pipes, sounding away in the distance. For Eamon and Alan, it was an unforgettable encounter. Meetings with John Doherty often were. In fact, John's health improved. Several months later, he left the Rock Nursing Home. He returned for a time to his customary lifestyle, traveling around southwest Donegal, staying and playing in a succession of homes of friends and admirers. By that stage of his life, he had achieved a good measure of recognition. The famous US folk singer, Pete Seeger, visited Donegal especially to meet and film him. In the early 1970s, Ulster Television made a remarkable documentary about John, Fiddler on the Road. In 1975, the filmmaker and co-founder of Field Day, David Hammond, produced a double LP called simply John Doherty for Galen. It was one of a number of commercial releases of John playing, singing, lilting, and telling stories, not to mention the many hours of private recordings. David Hammond described the notes flying off John's fiddle like a flutter of blackbirds. He said that John was regarded by many as the best, the most influential performer of Irish music. John's performance in the Rock Nursing Home echoed his own story about when his father, Mickey Moore, was on his deathbed. John thought that to lift his father's spirits, he would play one of Mickey Moore's favourite tunes, McSweeney's Reel, which had been handed down by one of the relations, the great piper, Turla McSweeney. However, Mickey Moore, always a stern critic, wasn't pleased with John's playing. 
He got out of the bed, took the fiddle off John, and played the tune with such vigor that the tip of the bow began to whistle. He returned to the bed and died not long after. <laughs> in 1980, John Doherty was back in the Rock Nursing Home three years later, aged around 79. This time, there was no getting out. Among his visitors was Keevan McGee, the fiddler and authority in Donegal fiddling, who lives outside Ballyshannon. On a Monday morning in late January, Keevan called into the ward. He heard John flawlessly thundering out the reel, the black mare of Fanad, with the energy of a teenager. John died on the Thursday. This was his last tune. It was another magnificent performance from the guru of Donegal fiddle playing, this time with the fiddle. I was very young, but already I had a head full of songs. Ba, ba, black sheep, how much is that doggy in the window? The world was full of songs they poured out of the radio. Glasgow in the 1960s could sometimes be pretty. Me and my mother looking out the window, the sun was shining and it was raining. My mother explained sun showers and a song burst out of me. A brand new song that I'd never heard before. My first original song. We were tiny, but we owned the streets, and we sang. Oh, ye canny shove your granny off a bus. Oh, ye canny shove your granny off a bus. Oh, ye canny shove your granny, cause she's your mammy's mammy. Ye canny shove your granny off a bus. Ye can shove your other granny off a bus. Everyone sang. My mother sang. A German clockmaker to Ireland once came. Her singing hurt my ears, but I knew something spiritual was happening. In the classroom, they'd teach us Scottish songs. In the playground, we'd sing Irish Republican songs. Miss Hogan was nearly 100 years old and had a fascination with Queen Victoria. She taught us what she called Negro spirituals. Way down upon the Swanee River. And my favourite, I know a girl called Isa Jane. Miss Gilfeder wore a miniskirt and loved the Beatles. At the start of 1972, we left Glasgow and moved back to Donegal. I practically lived in our shed with a record player. David Bowie gave solace to the alien in me. There were a good few sheds in the old town where spotty young fellas would play rock and roll badly. We'd gather in cold winter nights wearing big jumpers and coats, cheap guitars plugged into old valve amplifiers, and we'd play Chuck Berry and the Rolling Stones for hours and hours. I was a singer, so in my spare time I had to practice throwing shapes. <laughs> We'd play at school concerts and youth club hops. We played support to Philomena Begley and her rambling men in the Fiesta Ballroom. There was no YouTube then, so the vision of country girls jiving very fast 
to us playing Pink Floyd very slow survives only in my memory. In those days, a career in the arts was unheard of. Teachers would poke fun at the notion of it. But I had an overwhelming hankering for poetry, stories and music. I was warned no good would come of it. My mind became corrupted by the myths and legends of the blues and the promise of a lifestyle where I'd just wander around from town to town singing about the suffering I'd seen. So at 15, I decided to become a blues man. No doubt, down the line, I'd meet a woman and she'd do me wrong. <laughs> and I'd sing about that too. I was conflicted at school. Woody Guthrie had sown the seeds of anarchy and poetry made me precocious. Then along came punk. I was in my element. I was the only one in Donegal wanted to be a punk in 1977. But that didn't stop me starting a band. Joe Petrol and the Petrol Bombs. <laughs> it was just me in the shed, all alone. I moved to a squat in London to fulfill my destiny. Pogoed at the Hope and Anchor, but London wasn't ready for me. My talent was too unique. So I got a job in the building sites. And in no time at all, bingo, I had the building site blues. I got a job in a big site in Finsbury Park working with Rastafarian plasters. So culturally, I was evolving. There followed a series of adventures, mishaps and unforeseen consequences that kept me busy for years. I familiarized myself with the first noble truth of Buddhism, there is suffering, which is handy because you gotta suffer if you want to sing the blues. And in fairness, I got good at it. My dreams came true, and now I wander around from town to town, singing about the suffering I've seen. The awkward truth of my blues is that the woman I loved never done me no wrong. They all done me good. So now I live in a beautiful island off the west coast of Europe, same one as yourselves. Some mornings I wake up so happy that it's a struggle conjuring up the misery of the blues. But some mornings I wake to the haunting scorn of an old school teacher saying, but where is your pension? <laughs> and all I have to show are the songs, eccentric songs, that don't want to be number one, that just want to be sung. And if I don't sing them, no one else will. Travelling through County Clare in the summer of 1997 on our way home from a family holiday. We were stopped at traffic lights in a town and saw an Elvis lookalike waiting to cross the road. Black hair, sideburns and the full white suit, big belt and sunglasses. I heard my son tell this story to his wife recently with all these details. I said, no, he wasn't wearing a white suit 
It was just that he had the black hair and sideburns, and we joked at the time that he looked like Elvis. My son wasn't convinced. He holds this vision of Elvis and County Clare in memory, and he doesn't believe my version. My parents emigrated to the States in 1957. My aunt lived in Ohio, and they stopped off there with the intention of moving on to California. Mum then realized that she was carrying me, so they decided to stay in Ohio instead of California. That is the way I remember the story. My sister remembers hearing that they were planning on moving to Canada, California or Canada, which memory is true. I've never asked Dad where they had planned to live. I prefer to just believe that I was nearly born in California, <laughs> nearly raised there in the 60s. I like the flower power years that would have shaped me if we had lived in California. Our recollections can soften into nostalgia. Recently, on Green and Theatre staged a play about our local dance hall. The actors reenacted how the girls lined up at the side of the hall and the boys gathered facing them. I remember those Friday nights as magical. But as I watched it all unfolding on stage, I realized I was holding on to an illusion. In reality, I hated being a wallflower. You wouldn't sit in the mineral bar on your own. So most Fridays, after my friends had been plucked out of the crowd to dance, I shied away from the dance floor and hid in the girls' cloakroom. We bring our own point of view to memories. My mother saw herself as plain as a girl. Over the years, I've met men who told me they fancied mum when she was young. One said he used to cycle past her as she walked down the town, turn and cycle back up past her again. <laughs> if I could tell her this story now, she would laugh and argue that he's wrong and that he must be remembering a different girl. Memory is a trickster with the idea of first love. I know a man who talks about an old girlfriend as if she was the one who got away. He is frugal. He prison guards his money. She is Hollywood lavish. They would have made each other miserable. <laughs> and anyway, she hankers after another childhood sweetheart. They too would have been a disaster. The connections in the brain are so complicated. I have a friend in the States who had a car accident that harmed his memory. His friends and family have to tell him about moments from his past. He then writes the stories into a notebook to build up his mind. Their inclination is to only tell him the good stories. But he fought in Vietnam, suffered afterwards, and the difficult experiences partly formed the man that he became. If you had forgotten the bad parts of your life, would you choose to relearn them? 
Each sibling in a family remembers their parents differently. Stories from childhood can vary wildly. And so, to our family, how will our sons remember us? We were shopping once, and a son, who was eight at the time, pointed to a shelf with baked beans and said, those are the beans on toast that you gave us for Christmas dinner last year. (laughs) A shopper beside me shot me a look. I said, I didn't give you beans for Christmas dinner, but he insisted that I did. I hope now that he has grown up He remembers fulsome dinners. I hope they forget the days I was cranky and bad-tempered. I hope their memories of us are kind. Life stories are made up of history and make-believe. Memories add the colour. I remember, as a child in Ohio, I jumped down the steps of our front porch and for a few minutes... I flew through the air. I remember diving into Lakewood Park's outdoor pool and the diving board was as high as a skyscraper. I remember on vacation in Donegal, my grandfather kept pigs and once I was carried to the shed to watch them sleep. The mother pigs were as big as cows. These are some of my memories. We'll take them as true. Ballyshannon to me is a rock and roll town. The rock is the hospital and the roll is down the hill towards it. And so it's probably appropriate that Rory Gallagher, the guitarist who rocked his way around the world, was born here in the rock hospital on the 2nd of March 1948. My musical life changed when I first came across him and his music. Hey McHugh, forget Led Zeppelin, you want to be listening to Rory Gallagher? A friend said to me once. So, deciding to chance my arm, and wondering could an Irishman be really this good, I bought my first Rory LP, live in Europe. The impression was instant. The gatefold cover, the check shirt and Wrangler jeans, everyday clothes easily obtained in Guyanese in Dublin, the Fender Stratocaster guitar, and finally, and most importantly, the music. From the opening cards of Messing With The Kid, to the final riffs of Bullfrog Blues, with songs like the acoustic Pistol Slapper Blues in between. Here was electric blues rock as I'd never heard it before. I had been listening to Led Zeppelin, to Cream and to Hendrix, but here was a hero. This sound was absolutely honest. It wasn't a fad or a gimmick. Rory was 100% original, a sound that never leaves you. Many years ago, I got a bootleg VHS tape of the Tony Palmer documentary on Rory, Irish Tour 74. From the opening shots of Cork, where he grew up, 
to Belfast where he lived when playing with taste in the late 60s. The picture emerges of a wandering Irish bluesman, a troubadour of the road. In the documentary, Rory explained his philosophy of the blues. It was not just about the three hours spent on stage, it was more of a lifestyle. He didn't want to be a top 20 musician, didn't want to be confused with someone on top of the pops, and wanted to be still able to walk into music shops without being bothered, even if he was playing all over Europe on the same bills as the biggest bands of the period. He just wanted to live an ordinary life. I hung on to every word and modelled myself on them musically. Rory had a distinct tone. It was unique. You know it's him when you hear him. All his heroes, the great blues players, also had their own style. B.B. King, John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters. It was not so much an actual sound from a guitar and amplifier. It's more than there is something haunting, something plaintive about the way he played. There was an absolute quality to it that is intriguing. He was not a technical guitarist. His style was from the heart. As a blues guitarist honing my craft, I learned that the Rory style is one of feeling. Yes, there are tricky pieces, but the hardest to nail are the simplest ones, as this was straight from the Gallagher soul. I didn't know the man at all, but I knew many who knew him, and through them I've built up a picture of the man himself. My dear deceased friend Alan Thunder, who played drums with the movement in the late 60s, told me of how Rory and Taste were to be on stage after them on the same bill. Their guitarist became ill, and Rory stood in. I'll get you out of it, is what he said, and he sat down behind the stage curtain so as not to take the limelight away from the band as he was on after. That was Rory Gallagher. I will never forget seeing Rory on the 15th of August 1992 at the Temple Bar Blues Festival. Many say that the glory years are in the 70s, but that night was something special. College Green was closed off. The open stage was set up at the Bank of Ireland. It was to be his last appearance in Dublin. He died three years later. But what a night. Ronnie Drew joined him on stage for Barley and Grape Rag. The streets of Dublin rang with the sound of these two men, with the roar of Rory, the man who put the Irish blues scene on the map. The man who had, in the words of Ronnie Drew, not the overbearing manner of the mediocre, but the unassuming way of the great. Baby, you know I ain't too far from you. As a crawl flies, baby, you know I ain't too far from you. Well, since I don't have wings, I can't get home as fast as I want to. Where are you from? Donegal. How are the spuds there? Nice and small. How do you eat them? Skins and all. Wouldn't they choke you? Not at all. It was a clear man driving a lorry load of potatoes who gave me that, lifting me in the burin where I was thumbing nearly 40 years ago. In Boston growing up, we were instructed to eat skins and all. Same for bread crusts so that our hair might curl. However, I've yet to spot anyone in Donegal eating spuds after that fashion. 
though I remember my Glen Columkill neighbour, John O'Gara, telling me of a Scotsman he knew with that very vice. He ate skins and all, John informed me, his tone not unlike that of Dr. Samuel Johnson, whose distinguished dictionary defines oats as something generally fed to horses, but also eaten by Scots. <laughs> a few years later, my fellow Yank, Robin Barrington, cultural attaché at the US Embassy, wrote a Christmas letter to friends giving his impressions of Ireland, which was mysteriously supplied to the national press. Small potatoes, dull and provincial, were among his observations, with a grumble or two about the diet and climate, though in fairness he had positive things to say too, and was already rescheduled for reassignment to Japan, where his hosts, forewarned, no doubt had the wit to serve him long-grained as opposed to short-grained rice. <laughs> My own first impressions of Ireland date from a late summer fortnight in 1967. Hopping off the ferry in Larne, County Antrim, I set out to hitchhike round the island. Donegal was my first port of call and won my heart straight off. Among those kind folk who lifted me was a narrow-gauged railroad buff by name of James O'Dee, who drove me to Burtonport to look at the train track at the harbour's edge, where he pulled out a book with photos of its station house in 1937. It's different reading a book on the spot, he enthused speaking of the railroad remains as if they were dearly departed friends. Had I heard of the railway engineer named Finnegan, he inquired, who, chastised for his lengthy reports whenever a train was derailed, thereafter limited himself to the following telegram. Off again, on again, away again, Finnegan. <laughs> a few days later, at the Anoiga Youth Hostel in Carrick, I fell in with John, a long-haired, silk-kerchiefed, Cuban-heeled English lad, and Slim, a small, dark-skinned Israeli with lively eyes and a long black beard. Entering McGinley's pub that night, we scarcely turned ahead, though by closing time, everyone was in song. Nor was it lost on me how the welcome we'd met might contrast to the possible reception of such a grab-bag trio of strangers in a small-town America, as if tolerance towards the blow-in only makes sense in a corner of Ireland where the natives themselves are so much at the mercy of the wind. The U.S. diplomat Barrington had also grumbled about how the Irish pay scant attention to the conversation at hand, opting instead for idiom of their own which they can then employ to best effect. To my ear, however, Irish talk not only shows up the imprecision of much American speech, my own included, but can also nod at what novelist Norman Mailer called the secrets of existence that can be found in the constructions of language that have come down to us. Take, for example, something as simple as the greeting, anything strange or startling, or the reminder upon an unexpected death that there's no guarantee, or the way older folk not so long ago still pronounced holiday as holy day. I remember marveling too at how certain sayings seem more like a Zen Buddhist koan 
word riddles that can provide a key to sudden enlightenment, though it might well have been simply my own obtuseness, as in, it was walking slowly lost the ducks, and time enough that found them. <laughs> or, as my Glen neighbor John would observe whenever he was thoroughly stumped by some task, sure, we're as far back now as the man who ate his shirt. Those first impressions of Ireland back in 1967, English spoken unlike anything I'd heard outside of film and book, along with an abiding sense of history, both parochial and national, plus a landscape beyond beguiling, were themselves like seed potatoes that would flower into all that I would discover when I returned to live in Donegal throughout the 1970s and 1980s. Seed potatoes or in Spanish, patatas de siembra, as was printed across a half dozen burlap bags that I unexpectedly stumbled upon by the pier in Dunald Glencolum Kill in the spring of 1985. The same small Donegal village where a German lass I'd met a few years before informed me how her father had always gathered the wee spuds along with the large, which her mother always set aside for her and her sister and yes, which they both ate, skins and all. Sure, what did your man from the embassy, or for that matter, your man from Clare, know at all at all? That was a selection of highlights from Sunday Miscellany Live at the Donegal Bay and Bluestacks Festival, recorded at the Abbey Arts Centre, Ballyshannon, over a number of recent years and produced by Cleanan and Jan Lewin and Aoife Nicormack. The scripts this morning were A Fiddler's Farewell by Martin McGinley, No Pension Plan Blues by Little John Nee, Stories and Memories by Denise Blake, the Ballyshannon-born Bluesman was by Dave McHugh and Patatas de Siembra by Anthony Glavin. And the music? The Kid on the Mountain by Danny Meehan and Aidan O'Donnell on fiddles. Lorraine, written and performed by Little John Nee. Fantasie Impromptu by Chopin, played by Marie Askin on piano. As the Crow Flies by Rory Gallagher, performed by Shamie O'Dowd. 
and Here Beside Me by the Henry Girls. And the Donegal Bay and Bluestacks Festival is going to run for another week with music, theatre and literary happenings all across Ballyshannon, Ballybuffet, Donegal Town and of course online, including a literary gathering hosted by Denise Blake in the Abbey Arts Centre this day week, that's Sunday the 17th of October. And for more on that, have a look at DonegalBlueStacks.com. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Willem McCartney and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.